0: Good evening to everyone. Greetings from the brothers down in Frostville, Gospel Bible church down in Central Florida. I have a very short time to share what I want to share, and I'm going to try my best to hold myself together. There are times that I can't even sing, because I'm overwhelmed with God's love and forgiveness. But I'm going to do my best As I say that many of you guys know, my name is Ashley Severe, and throughout the week many people have asked me about the things that I would like to share, and I told them I'd wait. Just wait until today and I will share it. I was born in Freeport, Bahamas in 1975, and I came here to the United States when I was five months old. But I spent 34 years of my life in the city of Miami. Growing up as a youth, I had a typical life. My story is not one that I was disenfranchised or was struggling, but my, my family worked hard to provide for everything that I needed. But my problem started at a very early age. By the time I got into middle school, I fought prey to this thing that we call peer dependence. I started desiring the acceptance of people. More than the acceptance of my parents. At, by the age of 11, my, my math teacher called my father into, into school one day. And when it was explained to him, I, I wasn't doing my best in school. And my father just threw up his hands and said, I don't know what to do with him. But it started in the 6th grade. Desiring the acceptance of people more than my parents. And in actuality, what I was doing is desiring the acceptance of man more than God. Because there's one thing I didn't realize at the age of 11 years old, is that my parents represented God in my life. I didn't realize that. But that's in actuality what I was doing. I started off at the age of 11 selling out of grocery stores, just to eat food in classes, just to annoy my teachers, because all my friends were doing it. Issues as a young person. But you know something? Even as adults, we still struggle with these same issues. Because adult problems are not really adult problems. They're problems that we had when we were youth. And they remain unresolved. How many of you all have a 13 year old sitting in the sanctuary this morning? Think of your 13 year old. It was at the age of 13 years old that I was arrested for my first time of stealing a car from a teacher in my middle school. I was arrested on the second car that I had stolen, and for a silly reason, just to go across town and get a haircut. Why? Because I wanted to be accepted by men, by my peers. By the age of 14, I moved out of my parents' home. I didn't run away. I moved out. Because I desired the street life. Because by this time I was selling drugs by the age of 14 years old on the streets of Miami. Living with my friends. By the age of 15, I moved, I had my own apartment with my friends on Miami Beach. Down in Miami. At the age of 15. At the age of 15, I was shot right here in the face. Me and three other friends went to rob an illegal gambling house in the streets of Ma- Miami and we entered the gambling house armed and I got shot right here in the face and and you would not guess who shot me. If I were to tell you that it was my friend that shot me, what would you say? And if I were to tell you that my parents have predicted that there was a possibility that I would die at the hands of my friends, what would you say? Because my mom predicted it. You see, we don't realize as young people that God used our parents and our lives to protect us. I saw the rules of my father around my life like a fist, preventing me from going out into the world and having fun. But it wasn't until I came to Christ that I realized that that fist that I thought was preventing me from having fun, you know, going to the club, hanging out on the street corner, going to the boss with my friend, I did not realize that that fist was actually a protection from the dangers of the world from the Lord of this world. God desires, and He has purpose, that He will use your parents in your lives to lead you and guide you. Everything that my mom said what happened to me when I didn't listen, pretty much happened to me. My mom said that it would be my friends that killed me, and it was my friend that shot me in the face. And after my friend shot me in the face, I fell to the ground, exclaiming that he had shot me. Him and another guy was standing right there in the room. Looked at me, turned around and ran. And mind you, I just told you that we were robbing at illegal Gambling House. Where people that were in there were armed. And a third, a third friend was in the room searching the room. When he heard the gunshot, he came out. He saw the other guys down and all the people lying face down. And there I was in my own blood. And he picked me up and ran out the house with me. And by the time we got down the street, the people that we were robbing was at the door shooting at us again. And one night, I almost died twice. Shot, shot in the face here. The bullet bullet went across my face, shattered a couple of my teeth, and broke my jaw. And they took the bullet out about six weeks later, because it was too soon to take it out, because it was too dangerous. Because of all the blood vessels that were in my head. And you would think that I would change after that day. I didn't change, even with a bullet still in the back of my neck. I still went back to hang with the same friends. My mouth was wired shut for four months. I can't eat anything. I had to drink from a straw, straw, drinking infamils and all kinds of of replacement vitamins, so I can regain my strength. As I sat there in the hospital after getting shot, I would cry and cry and cry. When my friends would come and see me, I would say to them, "I said, man, I'm not going to do this no more." Because by the age of 15, by the time I got shot, I was robbing people, I was selling cars, I was involved in drive-by shootings, snatching pocketbooks. And I want to give a quick disclaimer. Because I take no pride in the crimes that I've done. But I'm sharing them to say how deep that at the age of 15 that I was forced to grow up on the streets of Miami. Forced in order to survive. Did I have to? I didn't have to. I could have just rested in the protection of my family. But I wanted the love and the lures of this world. Less than a year after this incident, I went right back to the same line shop. But while I was in the hospital, after I got shot, within those two weeks, I was telling all my friends, oh, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to put my life on the line anymore. To try to try to um, get the things that the world has. You see, I looked up to the older people in, in my city, the guys that were driving around with the expensive cars. They were only a couple years older than me, but I looked up to them. They had the expensive cars, they had the gold teeth, they had the chains. I mean, you hear them three blocks away when they're coming, and I wanted to be like that. But when I got shot, I started to change my mind a little bit. But as soon as I got out of the hospital, that's what I did. I went right back to that life. There was an old lady that used to visit me in that hospital, and she would always ask me, okay, when you get out of the hospital, will you go to church with me? I said, yeah, I'll go to church with you. And I wanted to change. But as soon as I got out of the hospital, I did not go to church, not once, with that lady, not once. Isn't that like us in life when troubles happen, is, is that when we cry out to God? And oftentimes in life, when God answers our prayer through His mercy, when He has removed that problem, we go right back to our own life. We're the same old person. Went back to that life again. Started selling drugs. Went back to selling cars. After about three or four months of getting shot, I was—I—I I came to make friends. But a gentleman that was 22 years old, and I was 15. He was just being released from attempted murder on a police officer. And I began running around the city of Miami with this gentleman. Selling drugs, doing drive-by shootings. And when the time got off in the drug hall, I would go out and we would commit robberies to try to make up for the so-called money that we thought we were losing. Because too much pressure was in the drug holes. After about 8 months I was arrested, this time for robbing another gambling house. The first one I was never arrested. When I arrived at the hospital, I told them I was at a park. And someone just drove by shooting and I just happened to get shot. Of course the people in the gambling house weren't going to call the police because they were illegal already. And so I got off the hook, clean, except with a bullet in my head. But I got arrested again later on for another home invasion robbery. And this time, someone else was shot. And I was arrested for first-degree murder, three counts of armed robbery, armed burglary, and possession of a deadly weapon. Each one of those charges, all five of them, held a minimum of 25 years in prison. At the time of my arrest, I didn't care anymore. I, I had no, no fear of time because I've been arrested before. There was nothing new to me. And I had already resolved, when the police officers were arresting me, I had already resolved in my mind that I knew I was probably going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And it did not bother me, not one bit. But as I was there there, I was adjudicated as an adult, sent to an adult county jail. After about 8 months of being in solitary confinement, every single month I was in confinement. See, I was a kid, a very proud kid, even at the age of 15. I mean, I I had this respect for adults. I had a respect for adults. Even though I was doing all these bad things. I had a certain respect. It was kind of odd respect. Meaning, I wouldn't curse in front of an adult. But if an adult disrespected me, I wouldn't have thought twice to pull a gun out. See, I was a poor kid. After about 8 months of my incarceration, Every single month, I spent time in solitary confinement because I was being arrested while I was arrested. While I was doing time in the county jail, they would put me in solitary confinement because I was either disobeying a verbal order, disrespecting a police officer, or getting into fistfights. But one day, one faithful day in 1992, after being involved in my second jailhouse riot, In solitary confinement, as I stood there at the door talking to my friends, I got into a confrontation with one of them. Now both of us are in solitary confinement, locked behind our doors. And I got into a confrontation with one of the guys that were a close friend of mine, We were on the same side in this life. And we were angry at each other, and we had purpose that when we saw each other, whenever we were outside these doors, when we saw each other, we would fight. And there was another gentleman that was there, and he he had ganker application as well. And I sure have to say, because on this sacred day, on any other given day, this would not have bothered me. But something began to happen that night. Even before I was a Christian, I was a very emotional person, but I held my emotions intact. The fact that my friends, the very guys that I trusted in, and I fought for in that jail, they were turning against me that night. And so when I went inside of my chair, I started thinking in this solitary room. Started thinking about the decisions I was making. Started thinking of all the lessons that people, when they came to the jail, and they were teaching us. There was a brother called Earl Campbell. From Hollywood Bible Chapel. At the time, I didn't know he was a part of a Brethren church. But he would come into the county jail safely. Week in, week out. And give the gospel. And teach us about Jesus Christ. Every time he came, I would sit down and listen. But when he was gone, I'd go back to my family. Go back to my curses. Go back to doing the same thing that I was doing before. But that faithful night, when I got into the confrontation with my friend. I went and sat down. And something began to happen in that solitary room. I started thinking about the decisions I was making. I started thinking about my father. At the age of 14, I got into a fight with my father on the streets of Miami. He came there to try to save his son from the environment of drugs. And there I was fighting with him in the streets of Miami. And I sat there and I thought about it and it broke me that night. It didn't bother me any other night, but that night it broke me. And I started thinking about my mother. How my neighbors were telling my dad that she had lost her mind. They would see her come home from work and it seemed like her mind was just gone because her oldest son is in prison. And I began to write a letter to myself. And that night, I got on my knees and I said, I'm scared. I said, God, I give up. I give up. Because you see, before that time, I used to listen to people preach the gospel and I thought I was saved because every time someone came in and preached, I sat down and listened. I read my Bible. I prayed at night. I thought God was hearing me. But when they would leave, I would go back and do my own thing. But that faithful night, I said, God, I give up. I give up. I don't care anymore. And so I continued writing a letter to myself just my life story and this guy that I got into a confrontation with who called me on any other day I would have cursed him out but I stopped writing my letter I walked to the door and he said what are you doing I said I'm writing a letter he said "To who I said I'm writing a letter to myself and he stayed quiet I'm sure he thought I was going crazy but I said you know something after today things are going to be different and he asked me, why do you say that? I said, because I just became a Christian and gave my life to Jesus Christ. After that day, I wasn't perfect. I still got into confrontation with people. I still had the issue of pride in my life. I didn't want to listen. But you know something? After every confrontation that I got into after that day, God convicted me so much. And he compelled me to go back to that enemy and apologize This was one of the hardest things I had to do in life. Is go back and apologize. And, in, and to do it in jail. That was a big no-no. To apologize, that would be admitting that you're soft. But I had no peace until I was going to apologize. And that was a sign in my life that God was changing me because He gave me no peace. Until I went and apologized. And after that day, up until that day I was fighting my crimes. Me and the shooter of my car, I didn't pull the trigger in this murder. But the gentleman that did it, this 23-year-old, that pulled the trigger, me and him had, had conceived a plan. We said that we were going to put this charge on the 24-year-old that was with us. we were going to say that he forced us to do it. And so we put together a plan so that we can get off stop-free. And put the murder on someone that didn't even do the murder. But after that night, God convicted me about my plans. And during one of my phone call sessions that they grant you, twice a week, I called my lawyer. And I called my lawyer and I said to him, I said, I don't want to fight my charges anymore. Because up until that time, I was fighting, I was denying, pleading my guilty. But God convicted me and said that I had to come clean if I wanted to be a Christian, if I wanted to follow him. I was convinced at that point in time in my life that God wanted all of my heart or none of my heart. Because I've gone to the, through the times of pretending and acting. I've been through those times. And God was telling me that night, He was saying, that you're either going to go all the way or none of the way. And then I said, Okay God, okay. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll confess everything that I've done. But I'm not going to say about everything that my friends did. God wasn't having me. He said, No, if you're going to give your life to me, you need to be totally honest about what you've done. Now mind you, I had already called my attorney, and I was planning to confess to everything that I did. And by the time my attorney called the state attorney, and he came to, came to visit me there in the county jail. I was from Dave County, but I, I went to Broward County, 30 minutes over to the next county to commit this crime. So the state attorney came to see me, And he asked me, he asked me, I heard that you wanted to tell the truth. And I said, yeah, and he asked me why. I said, because I became a Christian. And he said, okay, and I told him every single detail of our crime. Everything. Including everything that my friends did. Including the plans that we were contriving to put on this 24-year-old. And not take responsibility for him. Of course, he was happy to hear it. And when he was done, he asked me, "Is there anything else?" I had no intentions of sharing, it, but I said yes. At that time, I had confessed to two other murders, political, contract killings that I was part of in Miami. You see, the 20-year-old that I had begun to get hooked up with at the age of 15, he was a contract killer. And he was responsible for killing two radio announcers for political reasons. And right there as I sat in that room, I confessed that my part in that crime. And then after I confessed to that, he asked me if there was anything else. And brothers and sisters, I confessed to everything that I've ever done. The drive-by shootings I never got arrested for. The drugs that I sold. The three open warrants that I had in the city of Miami that I actually had no business to be even out on the streets. I confessed to every single thing and after that day I went back to my solitary cell and I sat there. After a couple of weeks the city of Miami sunk detectives to come and question me on these murders in Miami. And I sat there for hours giving depositions of everything that I've done, my, my position and the part that i played in all of these. Because I was convinced that God wanted all of my heart, or none of my heart. You see, there's this message that Jesus Christ preached, it's the very first message in His ministry. It was on repentance. Very first message, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at night. Repentance is the very first thing that has to take place in each and every one of our lives. So if we are to see any change. And God had convinced me of that in those days. And so I thought the whole truth. And when I share this story, people think that I'm crazy. But after a couple of years, I went down to the city of Miami to stand on trial for these charges that I confessed to. And as I sat there in the room, surrounded by a bunch of lawyers and two state attorneys, as they were asking me questions on these political killings, and they asked me, was there anything else? And I said, yes. And I just went through the cycle of the things that I had confessed to the state attorney. And when I went to a section of my life, I shared a about a drive-by shooting. They stopped and they looked at each other. The other defense attorneys they asked each other, like, we never knew about this. And a state attorney, they look they baffled because they were standing there weeks away from trial, and here I am, I pulled up another charge that, in, that involved the very guys that they were defending. And I noticed that they were paused, and I said, well, well I confessed to this three years ago. And they say, really? And they asked me to who? I said, to the city of Miami Police Department. And so they went into the, into the depositions. They went through it, and they found that I had indeed confessed to that. And you know what the state attorney said? Well, we can't charge him for it. We have no grounds. Because he had confessed to it three years ago. We should have charged him then. Why do I share that? Because I had believed God and obeyed God in doing what he told me to do, the right thing. You see, in this world, it's twisted. What's good is considered evil. And what's evil is considered good. We are rewarding evildoers in our day today. We give Grammy Awards to wicked, lascivious people that don't even care about God. I won't even ask how many of you are watching the Grammy Awards about a week and a half ago. Telling the truth is considered evil. And telling a lie is acceptable. But God proved to me that if I were to trust and obey Him in this area of repentance, that He would handle everything. And so as I stood a trial for my crimes in Broward County for those charges that I was arrested, I was only content to accept Jesus Christ and I had accepted the situation in my life. But the judge had tremendous mercy on me and he only sentenced me to six years when I was facing 125. I will forever be eternally grateful. You see, when you sing the song, There is a river filled with blood. I, I, I can't even contain myself. Because I think of all the crimes that I have done in society and to God. And to think that Jesus Christ would be willing to forgive me for everything that I have done. I raised my hand and say Hallelujah. I don't know if you thought it weird or if you saw me back there when you were seeing I had my hands up. And there was one time I, I attended the Baptist Church. Very conservative group of people. And they're saying they, they don't raise their hands. They don't even stand up. No. But when I attend the church, I'm in the front seat, I'm looking you, thank you Lord. And people are looking at me like, what's wrong with that guy? What's wrong with But they don't understand. They don't understand what God has done for me. It's only by God's grace that I stand here today with 5 kids. One on the way, married for 12 years. Only by God's grace. Upon my release from prison, back in 1994, I went to trade school and took up a trade. And within a year, I, I was hired by Prakatchi Commercial Development. You guys who are from Philadelphia, if you're familiar with the Procacci brothers, farmers of tomatoes, this was his nephew that hired me down in Miami. And he accepted me. I had an opportunity to sit in in this house in in Boca Raton and I explained to him the life that I came from. This is a self-made millionaire. And as I talked to him and shared with him my life and God took away all fear from me and I showed him the details of my life, he looked at me and said, Man, you know not too many people make it out of your life. And instead of not trusting me, this gentleman trusted me more. As I worked for him, after about a year and a half, he promoted me to be a building manager of a seven-story paint building. Can you imagine that? Someone who got out of prison years before? I'm a building manager of a seven-story paint building. Only God's And after three three or four years, I was promoted to field superintendent. I worked for him for about ten and a half years. After about ten and a half years, I went and got my state contractor's license and started my own business. For five years I've been running my own business in the city of Miami with a state set of certified contract license. I know sharing my testimony, a lot of times I hesitate because I don't have enough time. Because when I share my story, it creates more questions than answers. Because when you think of all the things that I share that I have done, you may sit at a point in your life and say, wait a minute, well, have you really given accounts of everything that you've done? Brothers and sisters, I can stand here today and say that God has forgiven me by His grace and His mercy through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, in 2006, I was granted a full pardon by the state of Florida for everything I've done with the right to bear arms. I joke around with my, with my wife because families are not allowed to care, to bear arms. And I joke around with my wife, I said, well, look, I'm grateful for this pardon, but I know it's a real pardon when they grant you the right to bear arms. Because in the state of Florida, you're not allowed to carry arms. They have 10, 20 If you're caught with a firearm, you're going to face at least 10 years, mandatory. But as I sit there in the courtroom of this clemency, as I sat there in this board meeting with the state of Florida with the governor, secretary of, of state, and the secretary of treasury, and I sat there and I listened to everybody that was going before me, going for clemency, giving their story, and they were and clemency to almost everybody that was going. So I said to myself, I know he has to grab me a clemency. He has to because of how my life has changed and the direction I'm going, and here I was with my wife and four kids. So I got up and I gave my story, my life story. My wife, standing there with me with my kids, she gave her story. And by the time I finished my story, the governor read my charges and said, I'm sorry, we will not grant you clemency. Your clemency application was denied. My heart sunk that day. And as I stood there at the podium after giving my testimony, I asked the governor a question, and that started a five-minute debate. Between the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, and the Governor, and the Four Cabinet of Clemency. They stood, they sat there for five minutes debating about, on themselves, about the federal law of deportation, because I was, I, I was eligible to be deported to Freeport, Bahamas. Ever since I was released, I was on this list of deportations. And they stood there for five minutes, talking among each other. I'm just, me and my wife and kids are just standing there at the podium. Just listen to them going back and forth. And the Secretary of Treasury turned around to the Governor and said, Well, Governor, um, are you sure this is what you want to do? And he turned around and said, Well, after, after hearing all of this, the debate that they were having, I grant you full clemency." And my wife screamed. I stood there. I didn't know what was going on. Everything, everything was like a blur to me. And I stood there. I can't believe what was happening. My wife screamed in the whole courtroom, applauded. And I thank God that not only I am forgiven in heaven, but I am also forgiven here on this earth, in the eyes of man. And so I walk around with a confidence not in myself, but a confidence in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and His power to transform lives. John the Baptist, as he was preaching, he was out in the field baptizing. The Pharisees came to him. Scripture doesn't tell you why they came. Perhaps they came just to see what was going on. Perhaps they came to try to find some kind of fault to arrest them. Scripture doesn't tell you. But upon their arrival, John the Baptist said, You brutal snakes, produce fruit and keep me with offenses. And he goes on to share. He says that there is one that's going to come after I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water. But when He comes He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He said His winning fork is in His hand. And He will separate the wheat from the child. The child He will burn with unprincipled fire. But the wheat He will bring into His barn. For many years, when I heard and read this story, or heard other people talk about the story, I always thought that the weak, the weak was the ungodly, and the champion was the ungodly, and the weak were the Christians. That it was the of Judgment Day. That the Christians will be taken to heaven, and the ungodly will be burned with unquenchable fire. But brothers and sisters, I tell you, that's not what John the Baptist intended. When he gave that message, that's not what he was saying. He was talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. In a person's life. You see, when I hear this message, I hear people say, speak of it as if it's two separate entities. But it's not. The wheat and the chaff is one one thing. It's not two separate entities. The wheat is part of the chaff, and the chaff is part of the wheat. The chaff encapsulates the wheat. Another picture of this wheat and chaff is like corn. Right? We have corn, we have the outside which is the huff. The inside, which is the kernel, this is the desirable part. We don't eat the husk, right? I don't think we do. Anybody here to eat the husk? No, we don't. The husk is the undesirable part. But we're feeling the husk so that we can get to the kernel. The same picture is given here in the book of Matthew. The child is what encapsulates the wheat. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's heart, you know what his desire is? It's to remove the child from our lives. That's the picture of repentance. If you can live a sinful life comfortably, you need to ask yourself if you're a Christian. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to remove the undesirable things of our lives, those bad habits that we pamper. And brothers and sisters, these are not just problems of our youth. Remember, these are adult problems. problems we had when you we were young, but were unresolved. Young people, you have a head start tonight to deal with your issues. And God challenges each and every one of us here tonight to repent. There's two types of repentance that have to take place in the believer's life. One at salvation, but there's another that is constant. Every single day, we must repent. Every single day. John about to say his winning fork is in his hand. And he desires to change us. We may come as we are, but Jesus Christ forbids us to stay as we are. We must live a life of repentance. And I stand here today not because of any good that I have done, but because God's Holy Spirit is impressed upon my heart, what it truly means to repent is that we can't just sit there and talk about it. We can't go, oh, amen, hallelujah, praise God. And then tomorrow we go back and do the very same thing. God wants to change. I applaud all of you parents that are here tonight. Because I am convinced that you're doing a good job in teaching your young ones what the scripture says. I'm convinced. Because I sat down and spoke to a couple of them. And even today as I sat down in the hallway to my room gasping for air and playing basketball trying to catch my breath, I took a couple of them to talk and I was asking him a question. If God was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? He'd never ask you the question because he already knows. But if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If you were to say, because I pray to accept them, I would say you would not be getting in. If you were to say, because I believe in him, I would tell you that you would not be entering in, into heaven. If you were to say, well, I've been a Christian and baptized that since I was a youth, I would say to you, if that's what you're depending on, I'm sorry. You will not be entering in. You see, Jesus said, many would tell me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name. Then we cast out demons in your name. Then we do many miracle works in your name. And He would tell us, I never even knew you. Away from the evil evildoers. Now, if that caliber of Christianity would not be making it into Heaven, for those qualifications, how about you and my brother? And He condemned them as evildoers. So if you profess that because you believe, Satan believes in each and instead of on the heaven. It's going to hell. Have you said? Because I said a prayer. You know that there is nowhere in the Bible that says that you have to say a prayer to get to heaven? Do you know that? If you tell me that that's what you're telling me, I say you won't be getting into heaven. You see, these people that profess to preach to cast out demons, to do many miracle works—you see—they profess the right thing when they say, "Lord, Lord," but they're not doing the right thing. Because Jesus said, "Away from me, you, you workers of iniquity!" And sometimes they simply says, evil doing. It. Now, when you look at that word "iniquity," it says being a law unto oneself. In other words, it's saying doing your own thing, living your own life. Say what you want to say. These people that profess to preach, cast out demons, and do many miracle works, they were people that did their own thing. Whenever we do our own thing, we are sinning. The only thing that's going to get us to heaven is the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Not saying we're Christians, not saying instead of prayer. But living a life that demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because He says, not everyone says, Lord, Lord, is want to get in. Right? And if I was to uh, take a poll tonight, I'm sure everyone would say that we're going to heaven. But are we living like this?
1: I'm not preaching
0: that you have to do good to get to heaven. I'm not preaching that. But I am preaching that there ought to be an outward demonstration of the inward power of God's Spirit in your life through the decisions that you make. We would never say that we deny the Lord Jesus Christ with our words, but are you denying Him with the decisions that you're making? And the decisions that you're not making? Word of wisdom for the young people that are here today. When your parents brought you here to start life in America, their desire is for you to do better than them. And we understand that. But oftentimes we think that, that their desire for us to do better is only monetarily or financially. Or positionally in our lives, or the jobs that we take. I believe that your parents' desire for you to do better than them spiritually, and not just financially, not just educationally. Because when I look around at all that the investment that your parents are investing in you, and I'm talking to the first and the second generation Americans here. That when your parents came, you were the first ones that, are, that were born on this land. And I want to challenge you fathers. or remind you fathers. Do not take it for granted that the generation behind you is following closely. But accept the responsibility to disciple them. And the generation I'm speaking of is between 25 and 40 years old. And you 25 and 40 years old men. Do not take it for granted. That the generation behind you. is going to follow your example. But you take the responsibility to disciple them. Find somebody else that's younger than you. And be a mentor to them. Because I'm going to tell you. If we're depending on one hour or three hours of church on Sunday morning. And one hour of prayer meeting during the week. To counteract. 24 hours a day, six days a week, the impact that media in this world is having on our kids. If we're depending on just that, we're in trouble as a church. This should be happening in our homes. Not just Sunday morning, not just Wednesday, but in our very homes. Because we are inundated with indoctrination. Every time you turn on the television, Repentance. And I pray that when we leave here tonight, and that God, brother, see five creatures today, that repentance will be evidence in our lives. First for salvation, but a constant one. Daily. And may God bless his work, brother.